With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us this morning on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up on the show today, addressing questions about new paid sick leave requirements and also projections for wine markets and how that could impact California's production. But we start this morning with Brian German. Today we're talking to BASF Tech Service Representative Jessica Samler about almond bloom, and an important component of that is pollination and overall bee activity. And so, Jessica, how can weather impact uh, that critical aspect of pollination and uh, how it eventually relates to yield potential? Absolutely. So bees are critical to pollinating almonds. They are critical to getting a harvestable crop. Even self-pollinating varieties still need um, bees to pollinate some of them, but they just require about 50% less. Um, And honeybees are fair weather flyers. They're kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. They like it just right. So if it's too cold, if it's too windy, if it's rainy, um, they either won't leave the hive or they will only forage um, on the orchard edges. So they'll stay as close to the hive as they can and only do limited foraging. Um, And if if we don't get them into the interior of that orchard, you're going to see reduced pollination there. So they they are very critical, as I said, for our yield, for getting a harvestable crop. This past year, we saw a lot of impacts from the weather. One thing we saw was we had this extended bloom period. Um, It was longer than normal. And so those blossoms that were pollinated on the front end of that timing versus those that were pollinated on on the latter end, they matured at different rates. So when we got to harvest, we actually had variable crop uh, phenology within that tree. And so certain things were ready to harvest, but other um, almonds were not ready to come off yet. So it caused a problem for growers um, this year. And hopefully we don't see that going into next year, but it's always a possibility, especially if we have another cool and rainy spring. And now you'd mentioned that, you know, those things all kind of are connected and that, that weather can have a big role in terms of uh, bee activity and, and overall impacts to bloom. And so are there any maybe alternative pollination methods being explored or, or utilized in almond orchards kind of as a result of some of that uh, maybe inclement weather at inopportune times? So self-pollinating varieties are a start, but as I said, they still need bees. Um, So they're not perfect. Uh, It's not a perfect solution. And I'm sure that there are much smarter innovators out there than I am who are working on alternatives. But I would say that ultimately farming is intrinsically linked to the natural world around us. It's why the ag industry, it's why our growers are such strong uh, conservationists, because we know that we need to preserve what we have, because right now we are tied to the weather, to our pollinators and their health and survival. So it's it, as of right now, we are we are stuck with what we have. Bridging the gap between farmers and consumers is a challenge here in California. David Geiger has more. Some farmers in the state of California are worried about being priced out. James Gallagher, California representative, is in Iowa for the 2024 Land Investment Expo. He calls it a theme of regulations and rules. California is not the example uh, for what you should be doing. It's actually the warning sign of what you shouldn't do uh, in order to keep a strong, viable you know, ag industry. Something like Proposition 12 is not just causing problems for major pork-producing states. It also has an impact on California's agriculture. Gallagher is apologetic. Not only uh, does it not take into account 
you know, what really happens in agriculture. Um, but it's it's shrinking our markets. Uh, it's hurting farmers outside of California. Gallagher wants to wake the nation up to agriculture. He says there's a need for production and consumers to coexist. You know, so many people don't live on farms, right? I mean, that's the reality of, you know, the time that we live in. And people are disconnected from their food. We need to reconnect people to their food and understand where it comes from and, and really what it takes to bring that food to your table. There is a good movement trying to help bridge the gap in California. Gallagher wants to get people's attention on agriculture and what he thinks many take for granted. That we have an amazing food supply and a variety of foodstuffs uh, uh, is not something that will last forever uh, if we don't change the trajectory that we're on. Uh, in terms of policy and mandates on farmers. Reporting in Des Moines, Iowa, I'm David Geiger. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search for the AgNet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's AgNet News Hour and it is available on both Apple and Android devices. This is the AgNet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson and we will be back in just a moment. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's national spotlight, U.S. agricultural exports are still trailing exports of a year ago. Gary Crawford has more. We now have the final ag trade numbers for the first 11 months of 2023, and they're pretty much as expected. USDA economist Bart Kenner gave us the figures. Agricultural exports for January through November 2023 are $159.4 billion, down 11% from the previous year, and agricultural imports were $179.3 billion, down 2% from last year. That makes for an ag trade deficit of almost $20 billion. Kenner says bulk products are seeing the biggest declines. Wheat exports for January through November 2023, $5.6 billion, down 28% from the previous year. Corn exports were $12 billion, down 31%. Soybean exports, $25.4 billion, down 14%. Cotton exports, $5.5 billion, 36% less than for the 2022 year. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. How does an extension of the current farm bill impact the wish lists of various commodity groups and ag organizations for a new one? Rod Bain reports. As 2024 begins... Congress will soon resume work, including finding a way to pass a new farm bill. A one-year extension was granted for the current farm bill to give congressional leaders more time, up to September 30th, to craft a measure for consideration. So does this extension also give various stakeholders opportunity to make modifications or updates to their respective farm bill wish list? As representatives of various commodity organizations and ag groups, such as American Farm Bureau Federation Executive Vice President Joby Young point out. A lot of work's been done, a lot of input and stakeholder feedback gathering has gone on over the last 18 months. Or two years, or in some cases, even the five-year and counting length of the current Farm Bill enacted in 2018. And because of the process of crafting detailed Farm Bill wish list, Plus, the amount of time Congress has spent over the past two years plus soliciting input, Andy Levine of the American Sea Trade Association puts on his cake boss hat to offer this analogy. I'd say the cake mix is made. 
may not have been completely baked, but you're not going to be introducing a lot of new things in there that already haven't been debated, already discussed, maybe a marker bill somewhere out there that may pull in. But I think for the most part, the ideas have been vetted, and we've got the cake batter together, and we just need to figure out what pan we're going to cook it in. That's not to say some organizations may not take opportunity to have a second look at their farm bill priorities. For instance, according to Michael Strands of the National Farmers Union. As more discussions happen out in public and negotiations are sort of bandied about here in the coming weeks and months, we might refine some of those points a bit more. One thing a farm bill extension does give, as agreed upon by most of the ag sector, such as Josh Gackle of the American Soybean Association, certainty. A permanent bill, a five-year bill would have been better, but in absence of that, I think an extension is helpful. It gives some certainty to producers who are making decisions for crop season, growing season. That's because 2018 Farm Bill programs will be available for sign-up for crop year 2024, such as USDA Farm Safety Net and Conservation Offerings. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, 2023 was a roller coaster year for many in agriculture, especially those in the dairy industry, and with New Year brings new expectations. Zach Bowers with Ever Ag reflects on the up and down nature of 2023 for dairy producers. 2023 was a real roller coaster of, of highs and lows, right? Looking back on it, I never in a million years would have guessed we would have seen the $14 class three that we did in that June-July period, um, and then to follow it up with $19 just a couple months later, and then right back down at where we're at, you're looking at, you know, 15, 30-ish class three at the moment for January. Dairy demand will play a big role in 2024 prices, but Bauer says the supply will also dictate the direction of markets. Supply side continues to do its thing here. We're seeing cow numbers drop. We're seeing that milk production report continue to run lower, not only here, but actually globally as well. Europe trending lower at the same time as they're affected by you know poor margins and environmental regulations similar to uh, us here in the U.S., but actually a little bit more extreme. Looking into 2024, supply side probably continues to stay tight, and eventually that will catch up to us, and I think we'll uh, allow for better milk prices the time being, though, the next three to six months, hard to get really excited about this market, right? Bowers admits it's hard to get excited about 2024 prices when you look deeper into the cheese production side of the industry. The last couple of years, all we've done is add more cheese production. These new billion-dollar cheese plants, to run efficiently, have to always run full. So even with milk production tightening, that usually just ends up shorting the class four butter powder plant. That continues to hold the 19 plus dollar milk price in the 2024 and I think can probably continue to be the shining star for the next year or so as tight milk production causes lower production of those class four products. However, the cheese plants are going to continue to make their fill and that means we need to rely on the export market. We just don't have enough demand here domestically to consume all that. The U.S. has not competed well price-wise on the world market, but entering 2024, that has changed, and the U.S. has the most attractive price for world buyers. Right now, we're the cheapest in the world on the cheese front at a you know 145-ish uh, spot price, whereas you know New Zealand's closer to 190. Europe's also in that 180 to 190 price as well too. So we should be the first stop for exports. The question is if and when that happens, right? I mean, we continue to see Chinese economy downturn, continue to see their participation on the New Zealand GDP auction. You know, this last auction this Tuesday was actually their participation was down 53% year over year. Eventually, they will have to come step back into the market. 
doesn't look like it's right now, and it doesn't look like it's going to be anytime soon, right? We're going to continue to have to weather this poor export market for a little bit longer. Cow numbers continue to lessen, and Bowers says another source of revenue for dairy farmers can be found in the dairy heifer market as replacements for the milking herd will be hard to find moving forward due to the increased beef-owned dairy breeding over recent years. If you own extra replacements, you're in a very good position right now to make decent profit on those, and I think that those prices will probably continue to remain pretty elevated into the new year, right, as one of the shining stars of the agriculture industry this past year has been the beef prices, right? I mean, we just haven't had the beef cattle in the pipeline to keep up with the demand. We saw that in the cold storage report last week with, you know, one of the lowest beef numbers in, in, in cold storage in, I think, three or four years. With that, we've seen a lot of beef on dairy, right? And you're seeing that in the day-old bull calves, right? I mean, they were anywhere from 500 to 600 bucks. I know they've come off maybe a little bit here in the last couple of weeks, but still a lot of guys getting $400 plus for a day-old. You're going to keep breeding that, right, which is only going to continue to keep that heifer pipeline pretty tight going into the new year. Learn more at www.ever.ag. For Agnet West, I'm Will Jordan. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. Farm employers are working to navigate some regulatory and administrative changes for 2024, including some of the expectations for provisions of paid sick leave. Chief Operating Officer for the Farm Employers Labor Service, Brian Little, said he's been fielding a good number of questions about the new paid sick leave requirements. We have an increase in the required minimum provision of paid sick leave for 2024, where uh, everyone's going to have to be furnishing uh, five days or 40 hours of paid sick leave, whichever the two is greater. That's a question I'm getting a lot of these days. That's where we're making the step up from three to five and uh, 40 hours. And one of the things that seems to confuse people is they're just is it an eight-hour day and three eight-hour days, or is it five eight-hour days, or is it 40 hours total, regardless of how many hours they work? Bottom line, it's the greater of the two, whichever those two are you're required to provide. Cornell University's introduced three new apple rootstocks through its Geneva rootstock breeding program. The new Geneva 257, Geneva 484, and Geneva 66 are available to growers through the University's Center for Technology Licensing and cater to various apple growing needs. Geneva 257 is a semi-dwarfing rootstock ideal for varieties like Snapdragon and Gala offering large fruit and high crop load for high-density orchards. Geneva 484, another semi-dwarfing option, is productive and yield-efficient. Geneva 66 is resistant to fire blight and is suitable for cider apple growers using mechanical harvesting. The Geneva Apple Rootstock Program has become globally renowned with nearly 70 million trees planted nationwide. Cornell researchers continue their work aiming to address challenges such as saltwater tolerance and climate change in future rootstock developments. The U.S. Department of Agriculture Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs, Alexis Taylor, will be leading an agribusiness trade mission to India in April. U.S. exporters looking to participate in the trade mission have until January 22nd to submit an application. Ryan Brewster of the Foreign Agricultural Service explains the potential of India as an export market for agricultural goods. 
India and its 1.4 billion consumers really is one of the largest untapped markets in the world for U.S. agriculture. Those consumers are looking for high-quality agricultural products. They're looking for things that the United States can produce. One of the really exciting things is that this summer we had some market access opportunities for U.S. products, including almonds, walnuts, and frozen turkey. So it's really kind of opened up India in ways that we haven't had in many years. Wine market projections could see some changes to California production. President of Allied Grape Growers Jeff Bitter highlighted what might be expected for Valley wine grape production. I think red wine grapes south of Lodi are probably at higher risk for having a weak market in the future than white wine grapes. So that's one area to look at in terms of potential changes that need to be made. Up in the Lodi and Delta region, there's quite a bit of older vineyards now. You know, a lot of those have just aged out. And with the prices dropping now, a lot of those are not going to be economically sustainable. So there's going to be a need to remove quite a few acres as you move over into the coast, I think that's true as well in kind of the Paso Robles area where you've got a lot of vineyards there that have aged out. And with yields being challenged in some areas, that's just going to be kind of a losing proposition given where we're at with the market. The Denmark and California Climate Smart Agriculture Innovation Webinar is coming up later this week. The webinar will highlight how climate smart agriculture innovations are shaping the future food systems in California and Denmark with an emphasis on fostering development of sustainable and climate resilient specialty crops. Participants will hear from some of each region's leading innovators on key topics such as creating public-private partnerships to position climate smart agriculture, bio-based products for human and planetary health, and the concept of a circular bioeconomy and the innovative approaches being implemented. The 90-minute Zoom session will feature short talks from both Danish and California leaders, a Q&A session, and a partnership between the two regions. More information about the webinar is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. Food prices take a bit of a dip. That's coming up on this line of hours. When it comes to consumer prices for food and for most products... It is typical for prices to fall slightly in December. And that's what they did. Agriculture Department economist Megan Schweitzer says that according to the new Consumer Price Index, overall inflation for all goods in the economy during December went down by one-tenth of one percent. And for food, same thing. Food at home prices fell by 0.1 percent in December. And prices for food at home or for groceries were 1.3% higher than a year ago. Which is an inflation rate far below the average yearly rate of about 2.5%. And in fact, for the 22 general food categories that Megan tracks... We saw price decreases for 12 of them from November to December. And several foods last month actually were selling for less than they did a year ago, including fish and seafood, dairy products, fresh vegetables, and eggs. Those egg prices down almost 24% from a year ago. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back. Canada's overall economy stayed relatively flat or saw slight declines throughout 2023. While starting on a stronger growth pace early in the year, the Canadian economy slowed in the second quarter and continued to slide the rest of the year. Dennis Guy has more. 
The dominating feature has been the fight to kill inflation. To that end, the Federal Bank of Canada aggressively pushed its key lending rate higher, forcing the country's commercial institutions to raise their lending rates in lockstep. Since that time, there have been various signs that Canada's inflation has been tamed. Now there are some subtle hints coming out of the Bank of Canada that it might lower its key lending rate after the first quarter, possibly in early spring of this year. Don Desjardins is CEO of Deloitte Canada, one of the country's major economic analytical firms. Desjardins said it is possible that come spring, most Canadians could see lower borrowing costs. Sometime in the second quarter, we're likely to be in a position where the Bank of Canada will see the economy remaining quite weak and that inflation is continuing to come down. And that will open the door for them to start to give some interest rate relief through reducing its policy rate. Higher borrowing rates and decreased consumer demand has caused a slowing of Canadian productivity and job growth. And while Canada's economy flatlined, 2023 saw the country's population increase significantly through inbound immigration. The economic slowdown, along with the population increase, has led to higher unemployment numbers resulting in more competition within Canada's workforce. Deloitte Canada's Don Desjardins said higher workplace competition should bring about fewer labour strike disruptions, which has caused problems for Canada in recent years, especially in the transportation supply chain industries. And that unemployment rate we do think is going to increase, heading towards 6.5%. This suggests that companies, which right now are feeling the intense pressure from higher wages and higher interest costs, they're going to be able to perhaps negotiate lower levels of wage growth because as a worker, if we're starting to see some fraying in the labor market, we're probably not going to be quite as aggressive in terms of our negotiations for wages. So while indications are that the Bank of Canada could lower its key lending rate, Deloitte Canada CEO Don Desjardins does not expect to see the central bank take any fast or drastic steps in 2024. concern is that we would see the bank wanting to be very cautious if they ease too early and too much. It could really just reignite a cycle that puts upper pressure back on the inflation rate. Reporting from Canada, I'm Dennis Guy. USDA's Women, Infants and Children program reaches a milestone this month with the Agriculture Secretary and others discussing program benefits during a media call. Rod Bain has more. An anniversary this month, the 50th year of the first clinic opening under USDA's Women, Infants and Children program. The most powerful evidence-based public health program available for young moms, babies and young children. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack Thursday participating in a White House media call to discuss WIC and the need to fully fund the program, noting it currently serves 40% of all infants in the U.S. Of the 6.7 million participants, which is up about 400,000 from a year ago. Over 3.6 million of those are children. One and a half million infants and one and a half million women are beneficiaries under this program. Paul Throne is director of Washington State's Office of Nutrition Services. He says WIC is beyond a food safety net program providing essential nutritional support for developing children. In Washington State we estimate that we save about 89 babies lives every year. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
Most NFL playoff games are played in fairly decent weather or indoors, but there have been some wild weather games in the past. Gary Crawford has more. Ah, oh, that NFL music has a tough edge to it, doesn't it? Almost conjuring up soldiers going to battle in the most difficult of conditions, and in fact... If you pick just about any crazy weather phenomenon, you can find a football game that's been played in it. Agriculture Department meteorologist and a football fan, Brad Rippey, we picked just a few of the crazy weather games of the past just for fun, and so... Let's go back to... December 31st, 1967. The game that's become known as the Ice Bowl. The NFL Championship game, the warm weather Cowboys against the cold weather Packers in Green Bay on the coldest New Year's Eve ever recorded in Green Bay. 19 degrees below zero that morning, but it was a lot warmer by game time, 15 below. Now today, that game might have been postponed, but back then in Green Bay, no way. So let the game begin. Uh, that opening whistle, that was about the only one heard the whole game. The metal whistles kept freezing to the referee's lips, which had then to be pulled off along with the skin. Ow! And that bled, and the blood immediately froze, so the whole game was run verbally by the refs. It was ridiculous. It, it, got, it just couldn't get any colder than it was. Chuck Marcine, Packers running back or skating back that day because... The heating system under the field broke, so the field was just an absolute block of ice. There was slipping, sliding, lots of pain as players hit the frozen turf, and finally the cold weather Packers won it 21-17. Another cold weather game with a twist, the so-called snowplow game. That brings back a lot of bad memories. <laughs> <laughs> At least for Miami Dolphins coach Don Shula. December 12, 1982, the Dolphins and the Patriots in New England. Brad Rippey says... It had been rain the night before the game. The field froze over, and then heavy snow fell pretty much throughout the entire game. They could not keep that field cleared. No score for most of the game. Finally, at the end, a chance for a Patriot field goal, but the snow was so deep there was no way for the holder to place the ball. No problem, though. Patriot coach Ron Meyer calls timeout, sends a little tractor out there with a snow brush on it, clears out of space for the kick. The kick is good. The Patriots are happy, and Shula, well... I later petitioned the commissioner that it was the most unfair act that, that's ever been perpetrated and I wanted to score a change. But that didn't happen. 3 nothing. Patriots. Time for one more. Ah, the famous Fog Bowl. New Year's Eve 1988 playoff game. Philadelphia and Chicago in Chicago. Brad Rippey says partway through the game, a wind shift. Brought in air off of Lake Michigan and pushed a fog bank across the stadium to the point where you could not see from one end of the field to the other. Visibility just a few yards. So forget the passing game. Broadcasters and coaches up in the booths couldn't see anything. And there's even talk now of suspending the game because the officials can't see the ball. But they kept playing. Bears win at 2012, and there are many more games we could talk about, the Rain Bowl, the Mud Bowl, and on and on. The purists, and count me as one of those, think that football should be played outside in all the elements. After all, he is an element man, I mean a weather man. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. This is the Iconet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. For today's featured interview, we have Shannon Douglas, the new California Farm Bureau president. Also on the phone with us is Anna from the Stanislaw County Farm Bureau, and we go to her for this introduction. Well, good morning, everybody, and um, this is Anna Genesi. I'm calling in today from Stanislaus County Farm Bureau, and we have the privilege of recording once a month with Agnet West, and today I'm really excited because our, our guest speaker is actually out of county, um, newly appointed California Farm Bureau President Shannon Douglas is joining us today. Um, we're excited to 
to get Shannon right out of the gate here and hear her perspective on um, Farm Bureau and um, what she hopes to see uh, happening with Farm Bureau in the next couple of years. So good morning, Shannon. Let's start off, if you would just take a second and introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be the newly elected California Farm Bureau president. Absolutely. Well, good morning. I'm Shannon Douglas, and I am so glad to be able to talk with you guys this morning. I appreciate you making time, and what a great um, partnership you guys have with Stanislaus County and, and having this monthly time. Uh, so uh, I'm from Northern California, and my husband and I farm up in Glen County, so I'm just about 100 miles north of the Sacramento office. Our headquarters at Farm Bureau are here in Sacramento. We have an office um, over off of River Plaza Drive, basically kind of near um, the levee, and then we have our uh, another office as well uh, downtown, so some people might have been to those, either of those before. Uh, but my background is that I was actually not born and raised on a farm. I am a um, kind of a non-traditional agriculturalist, I suppose, who found my way to agriculture through the great 4-H and FFA programs that expose us to all the opportunity. And uh, then I married a farm boy, and uh, so together we uh, as soon as I started farming uh, up north, we are diversified growers, so we have a combination of livestock and crops uh, that are a pretty wide mix, actually. We've got uh, beef cattle, we've got walnuts, we do specialty seeds like sunflowers, uh, sometimes other uh, crops depending on the year, uh, we grow corn, forage, hay crops, etc. So uh, a pretty good mix for us. For me, my journey into Farm Bureau really started in college, and there were some great opportunities to get involved in the Young Farmers and Ranchers program. And so I kind of dipped my toes in the water there. It was just a fun group, and to be surrounded by other people that have similar interests and also care about agriculture was just fun, frankly. And then when my husband and I settled in Glen County, where he was from, it turned out to be a great way to start to get to know people in what, to me, was my new community and people that had similar interests. And so over the course of the last 20 years, I've uh, just kind of gotten increasingly involved. And when the opportunities arose to uh, continue involvement, I said yes a whole lot of times. And I ended up becoming the chair of the Young Farmers and Ranchers Program statewide um, over a decade ago. And um, that kind of led to just continued involvement. And so six years ago, I became a vice president. And then just over a month ago, uh, I became uh, the president and by election at our uh, annual meeting. So I, I love that you have, uh, you know, taken so many different routes in your, just through your lifetime and probably have learned so much. What are some of the um, most interesting things, this is an off-the-wall question, so what are some of the yeah. interesting things that you think that you have learned just kind of through this journey that you've taken to get to this point? Oh, gosh, that is an interesting question. You know, I think that probably an important theme, I think, to share with people, and I've, I've shared with this with a couple of groups because I do think it's important as far as um, agriculture, right? There are people who think that um, everybody involved in Farm Bureau, for example, that uh, we all must have, you know, our parents were involved in Farm Bureau or something. And I had a person a number of years ago before I was a state Farm Bureau officer even uh, who asked me, uh, well, wait, how did, how did you get involved in a farm organization then? They were basically like, the implication was how did they make room for you, really? And 
I think one of the neat things about agriculture is that it's full of great people. And our farmers and our members are people who want to do the right thing and they care about people. And I suppose it's innate that people who are good stewards of the land and who, you know, care about farming the land and and in some cases legacies, right, or in some cases just a, a love of the land, that they're people who are good people, right? And uh, and they're a lot of fun to work with, but I have definitely told a few groups lately that um, agriculture is, is a place with opportunity, uh, whether it's as a farmer or coming in as an agribusiness professional or in, you know, whatever walk of life someone might be in. And that does seem to be something that's been a little bit surprising to people from outside of agriculture. It's not something that had really occurred to me, I guess, as a problem, um, but it's been interesting that people from the outside think that it would have been, and I think it's just good for people to know that there's great opportunity in agriculture. Um, It's full of great people. You know, I think that you've brought up an important point that a lot of the time agriculture is seen as kind of an insiders-only industry, and that's just really not the case. Um, And it's good that you're bringing some visibility to that, which visibility is one of the key things that Farm Bureau does um, in general, just help people understand, as far as the public goes, help to understand um, agriculture and give it a little bit more visibility. What are some other things that you are hoping to focus on while you are president of the California Farm Bureau? Yeah, I think your point about visibility is going to be very important over the next couple of years. The work that farmers and ranchers are doing across the state is important work, and it's challenging work. And a lot of times it's challenging. Not only are we sometimes uh, battling um, Mother Nature, depending on the year, I suppose, the terms that we're just working with or sometimes it feels like against. Uh, But we live in a challenging state in which to do business, and yet it's a state where, uh, thanks to our climate, we have so much opportunity uh, to grow and produce great quality, nutritious food here. And trying to balance those two things are a real challenge for those of us who are you know, working the soil and managing these farm businesses. And so being able to continue to do that in California is going to be the most important thing, of course, that we're working on. Uh, But as part of that, some of it is helping people to understand the work that we do. Uh, There's some great work that we've been doing the last couple of years on the science front um, with our California Bountiful Foundation. That's probably a a topic for a whole other day and maybe a whole other guest speaker for you, but some really important and meaningful work that's been happening there. Uh, And we're just going to continue to tell the story uh, of California farms and ranches and continue to fight for our farmers uh, going forward. So those are all going to be really important uh, the next couple of years, no shortage of, of projects and needs and work to this is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will continue this conversation with Shannon Douglas, president of the California Farm Bureau, right after this. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and I'm talking today with Shannon Douglas, the new president of the California Farm Bureau. As you pointed out, regulation is always, um, you know, a big topic in California. Uh, in California agriculture especially, are there any primary, is there anything that you have your eyes on right now that you're really watching as far as regulation goes? You know, there's a whole lot that our whole team uh, follows very closely. And I think one of the important things to note there, uh, because 
you know, we've got the start of a new uh, legislative session, and so there's just a lot of activity, of course, happening on that front, uh, and our, our staffers, I'm very thankful for the wonderful staffers that we have working uh, downtown in Sacramento, and those back in Washington, D.S.T., of course, too. Uh, but I think one of the things that's really important is there's this interesting perception, uh, and, and well, the, the term gets used anyway, is that there's this perception that we have a high cost of doing business and that there's, you know, this... Um, this tremendous regulatory burden we have, but I actually had a, a non-ag reporter, I guess I should clarify, uh, that uh, had reached out to me on a topic, and they said they used the term, well, there's this perception. And I said, that's, it's not perception, it's actually reality, and we have the data behind it. And I'm sure you've seen that study that Cal Poly did a couple of years back about the regulatory cost increases that were seen in a, about a 10-year time period on the Central Coast. And it was a 795% increase in regulatory costs for a mid-sized grower. And so these are, you know, we, we can kind of lump it all together and call it, you know, regulation, and that does include everything from um, water and pesticides to labor uh, and, of course, on and on, uh, depending on the kind of crops that you have. But it's a, it's a real issue, and so we'll be continuing to fight that in Sacramento. And I'm, again, so thankful for the great staff we have uh, working on those issues that we'll, uh, we'll know all the details on what, uh, what some of those projects will be this year, uh, really in the coming days and weeks. I find it interesting that the that that non-ag reporter, as thankfully, that, thank you for pointing that out. Um, yes, I wanted to clarify that for you. <laughs> called it a perception because I talk with people all over the nation, um, and and it's pretty well known about California's cost of doing business and um, you know the cost of all of the additional regulations that California has. Um, that is something that people in in other states talk about when they're talking about California agriculture, but those are people within the ag industry. So it is the ag industry understands. Um, and maybe some- Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and some outside of the ag industry maybe perhaps do not. So good. that was a good teaching opportunity for you, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> so I am, um, I wanted to talk about you being the first female president of the California Farm Bureau Federation. And what does that mean to you? Yeah, I think that it, starting off um, when I've been answering this question lately, I really start by indicating that, you know, first off, it's important to know that women have been extremely involved in Farm Bureau and in agriculture for a long time. And I think the latest uh, census data was that about 37% of farms are owned or managed by a woman. And there's some really interesting details in there if you drill down, actually, as far as um, <laughs> those, those farms are diverse and active, and um, in, if we really drill down in the data, uh, in some cases they're actually um, so greater profitability. So it's interesting. Women have, women, have, women have been around, right? And in, in Farm Bureau, we've had women in leadership, particularly starting at the county level, for decades now. And it is the first time that there's been a woman as the president of California Farm Bureau. But we have had uh, wonderful women extremely involved for a long time, and I'm, you know, so thankful for uh, all of their involvement for many decades and the important uh, roads that they paved. Uh, but I, I think that it just really tells people, from again, from the outside, right, something about agriculture that maybe we're not quite um, – it's, it's not just a good old boys club, right? This is, again, like to my comments earlier, there's a place for opportunity for people, and um, 
and that's that's here and alive and well in agriculture. So um, I think it starts to show the differing face and diverse faces that we do have uh, in our industry and, of course, within our membership. Yeah, I was actually surprised when I um, was made aware that you were the first female president because I have spoken with and talked, you know, you know, known and talked with and done stories and things with so many women leaders within California yeah. Farm Rio. So, um, yeah, I was surprised. But um, as you said, it's, it's a, a good, again, to use the word visual, but it's a good visual just to say, you know, that yes, yeah. like you said, it's not just a good old boys network. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a place for people. Yeah. We are talking with California Farm Bureau President Shannon Douglas. That is all the time we have for today, but we will continue the conversation in tomorrow's show. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.